I love Jesus and I'm in recovery from addictions to drugs, alcohol, and sex. And in a minute, I'll get this iPad to work and I'll actually be able to give you my testimony. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, I give you thanks for this time and this place. I thank you that I can actually stand up here and give this testimony. I just ask that you use these kind of crazy words and this crazy story. Um, And people don't hear about me, they hear about you. And the incredible things that you've done for me and the blessings that you've blessed me with. And I want to give you thanks tonight, Lord, um, for your word, for your grace, for your mercy. And I really want to thank you for all the people that you put in my life starting 35 years ago that showed me the way, that shared their experience, strength, and hope with me. Because without them, I wouldn't be here. I love you and I thank you. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Okay. 2 Corinthians 1.4 tells us this, that he comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. So this is a story of me searching for my identity. I was born in Merced, California in 1964, the youngest of five children. God gave me two wonderful parents who loved me and provided for my needs the best that they possibly could. And I remember the first 10 years of my life being pretty normal. At least I thought they were normal because I thought that every other family in the world was exactly like mine. I had no idea that people lived differently than us, right? It wasn't until I spent the night at a friend's house that I discovered that every family was not like mine. That night I saw my friend's dad so drunk that he couldn't make it from the car into his bedroom without the help of his eight-year-old son. And that was the first time that I had ever seen the effects of alcohol. Later when I told my mom about this, she said that he might be an alcoholic, which is a term that I'd heard in reference to my dad. But I had, I had absolutely no idea what that meant. We never talked about it at home. I guess that was our family secret. But I didn't know why. See, in my mind, if my dad was an alcoholic, then everybody should want to be an alcoholic because my dad was awesome. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't cuss. He loved us. He spent time with us. He went to all of our ball games, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, the whole bit. But I remember my mom telling me something about how my dad would act differently if he was actually drinking. I found out some years later that my dad's recovery from alcoholism, <clears throat> this always gets me sorry, uh, began 18 days after I was born. He died in early 2020 with 55 years of sobriety. So my addiction, though, began at a really young age and without any chemicals. Today we call it codependency. When I was eight years old, I joined the Cub Scouts, and I remember being at my very first meeting. The Scoutmaster was up front, and he was explaining, you know, goes from Cub Scouts to Weeblos to Boy Scouts and all the badges, and there's guys up there with these giant sashes, and it was awesome, you know. And I knew with all my heart that someday I was going to be like the best scout in the whole world. I was going to be the Eagle Scout, right? 
yeah, that never happened. <laughs> but I did spend the next seven years developing my own overachieving, self-centered, all-or-nothing attitude that I still struggle with sometimes today. In the fifth grade, my family environment began to change too. My grandfather had sold the family business, uh, which left my dad faced with finding a new job. My parents decided to purchase a 7-Eleven franchise in Merced, and I remember <laughs> thinking this was going to be a blast. <laughs> I get to work at the 7-Eleven and drink free Slurpees. So I remember having a blast there and saving up to buy a new bike. Um, being the US of five, everything that I had was hand-me-down. So a new bike just for me was awesome. But here's some of the things that I learned while working behind the counter at a 7-Eleven at 11 years old. There are a lot of people that drink beer. There's a lot of people that smoke cigarettes. These are families that I knew, families that my parents knew, even people in law enforcement. Which at 11, I thought that was a big deal because they're supposed to be perfect. <clears throat> so this, this was something really new for me. And I remember looking at all those cigarettes behind the counter and all those uh, doors of beer and thinking that, you know what? At some point, I'm going to try every single brand. <laughs> and sooner or later, I did. And then there was the pornography. Lusting over pornographic magazines became my very first addiction. I just didn't know it at the time. Life at home was different too. So the structure that I'd grown up with where, you know, at exactly 5.15 every single night, dinner was on the table, we all sat down, family ate dinner together, gone. We rarely ate dinner together and we only went to church on Christmas and Easter. By the eighth grade, I was smoking pot and drinking as much as I could. By the time I started high school, I was smoking pot every day, and when I drank, I drank until I blacked out. By the end of my freshman year, I was using cocaine and other drugs. There's no doubt that cocaine became the love of my life. And I began to steal money to get it. I was also no longer partying with people that were my own age. I was partying with people that were between 10 and 30 years older than I was. Throughout all of this, my, my relationship with my parents was obviously strained. My mom could not stop trying to fix me. First, there was the counseling sessions. Then she and some of her friends invited me to go to church with them. She even took me to a doctor at Stanford because she thought that maybe I had a chemical imbalance in my brain. Come to find out, I did, but it was self-induced. <clears throat> but here's the thing. She had groups of people all over town praying for me. And today, I thank God that she never gave up. So my dad, on the other hand, <clears throat> my dad, on the other hand, remained pretty quiet, even though he was in recovery. Back in those days, drugs and alcohol kind of were looked at as different things, and he didn't think he had anything to offer me in recovery. I remember throughout all of this, we would still go to breakfast almost every week. Sometimes we didn't even speak during breakfast. But it was during one of those breakfasts when he invited me to an AA meeting. He told me that he couldn't guarantee that it would work for me, but that he could show me what he had done. He could share his experience, strength, and hope with me. Now, I have to tell you, my first AA meeting was much like my first Cup Scout meeting. 
I walked out of there so pumped up. I read those steps. I read those traditions. I knew that someday I was going to be like the best AA member ever. <clears throat> and the reality is over the next five years, I would attend a few dozen meetings scratching by my own power to try to get 30 days. And to be honest with you, usually when I got that chip, it was a lie. It was in August of 1985 that I moved in with my brother and his family in Sacramento. He had just opened up a brand new 7-Eleven store and he offered me a job. So I did the geographic thing and I tried to move away from my problems. Within a few weeks, I moved in with one of the girls that worked there and it was a perfect match for disaster. The rest of that year, uh, I really can't remember because most of it was in a blackout. Now, I can't remember all the events that led me to December 10th, 1985 or even what happened or where I was that day but that night, I wound up right here in Modesto at my sister's house. And I can't remember what any of the conversation that happened that night except for one sentence when I was banging on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning and she answered it. And she looked at me and she said, you know what, John? There's places for people like you. Two days later, I was invited to a one-hour family counseling session that turned out to be my intervention and an invitation into a 28-day treatment program. Now, when my family left that day, <clears throat> I didn't have, yeah, it was kind of a crazy time, you know, everybody crying and everything. But when they left that day, I didn't have any cigarettes, so I asked one of the other patients, which happened to be the prettiest girl in the room, if I could bum a cigarette. Now, this may not have any significance to anyone else, but I received that cigarette from my beloved wife, Karen, and we've been now been married for 35 years. <laughs> and we don't smoke. <laughs> So I was there for the standard 28 days, and when I left, I moved back in with my brother and his family. He gave me my job back. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I tried to do all the things they told me to do. I had a sponsor, but I rarely called him. Karen and I spent a lot of time together, and I remember, <laughs> one of the biggest things I remember is I had more money than I knew what to do with because I wasn't spending it anymore. But really, I thought things were great, but the reality was I was not prepared for temptation. I was praying and writing in my journal every day, but I was not working the steps with my sponsor, and my support group was just as weak as I was. Proverbs 26.11 says that as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. The first old friend I saw, he offered and I used, and I was completely demoralized. It's like, I, I can't believe that I did that. I will never do that again. Some again he offered, I used again. And then I knew I was going to use, and I didn't want to face Karen, so I took the easier, softer way, and I just didn't, I just dis disappeared. I didn't call her, and I didn't take her calls. Within 30 uh, days, I was an, on another binge. On July 14, 1986, I checked myself in, back into the same treatment facility, and I have not had a drink or a drug, sen drug since. <laughs> So that's like 13,400 and some odd days if anybody's counting. So, so after I'd been there for 24 hours, this is exactly how I felt. Freaked out. Completely fearful. Because how was it going to be any different listening to the same people, tell me the same things, taking the same notes in the same little journal thing? What's going to be different about that? I was terrified because I didn't think I had a chance to ever make it back again. It kind of felt like I only had the next 28 days to live. So that night I went to an AA meeting and found a new sponsor. 
And during the next 28 days, I tried to change everything about my life, not for the right reasons, but all out of fear. I just wanted to change everything because last time it didn't work. <clears throat> so my brother helped my job for me and offered me a room again, but I went to work for a painter who was in recovery and was set up to move into a sober living home when I got out of treatment. Here's the important part. I began working the steps. Everything that I did was about my recovery and with sober people. When I was new, everything that I did was about my recovery and with sober people. I went to meetings and sometimes multiple meetings every day. And on a day sometime late in 1986, uh, working the third step with my sponsor on my knees in the rain in his backyard, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. You see, all those changes that I tried to make, this is the one I had to make. This is the one I needed to make, and it's called surrender. Second yeah. Corinthians 5.15 says this, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So I continued to see Karen at meetings from time to time, but she really didn't want to talk to me until... One day in December of 1986, when she agreed to have Christmas dinner with me, we began dating again, um, and we were still very involved in recovery, both together and separately. We were married on June 27th, 1987, and today we have two grown daughters, Kelsey and Jessica, and two granddaughters, Skye and Maymay. <clears throat> in, in late 1989, I got a job moving, uh, driving a bread truck, and we moved to Fresno. And I really thought, all my problems are now over. Our income doubled overnight. We had incredible medical benefits and no debt. And Karen can now stay home to raise the family, which is something that she really wanted to do, and we've been praying about that. So I want to tell you about some mistakes I made when I moved from Sacramento to Fresno. First off, <clears throat> I didn't connect with a recovery family there, and I went from going to four to five meetings a week to only going to three to four meetings a year. And I didn't attend church, even though Karen asked me repeatedly to go. And I found out how easy it was to buy things on credit. And it started like this. It's a Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. <laughs> Dude, I bought every attachment that thing came with. It was like $3,500 worth of a vacuum, you know? Everything he said that I needed, I bought it. And 15 years later, I had close to $100,000 in credit card debt. Matthew 6, 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we had to chip away at that debt for years, but by being faithful to all that is his, 100% of that debt has now been paid for. In 1993, I get to this part of my, you know, you listen to people's testimony and it's always like, oh, they're done, it's all going to be good, but there's always a but, right? In 1993, we followed my job in a promotion to Aptos. We found a church home there and became very involved. I began reading the Bible and going to Bible study. There were other men there at church that helped to disciple me and hold me accountable. There were other men there that were in recovery. As I surrendered control and began to trust others to help me, my relationship with Jesus began to grow. I began to pray again. I was involved with the youth ministry, the men's ministry, 
and later I became a member of the church council. We hosted a small group in our home for many, many years. Then, here's the butt part, in 2001, we got our first computer. At least the first one that was actually fast enough to surf the web. It didn't take me long to discover the seemingly limitless world of online porn. I knew it was wrong, and sometimes I could abstain for months and months at a time, but when I did look, it could be for hours and hours or many days or weeks in a row. I kind of felt like a binge drinker. I transferred from one addiction to another after 15 years of sobriety. And it wasn't until August of 2010 that I would admit my sexual addiction, and God spoke to me to my heart with the following two verses. The first one is 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, and 5. It says this, then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. And the second one is from 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and 4. And it says this, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives gives authority over her body to her husband, and this is the part that got me. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Today, through God's strength and grace, lust is no longer in control of me. It was also in 2010 when some folks from the church I was attending asked me to help them start a Celebrate Recovery. I have to say, I really didn't want to get involved. If you can picture heels in asphalt, (laughs) digging it up, that's kind of how I felt about getting involved. Especially when they told me I'd have to go through a CR 12-step. Like, what could I learn about recovery after being, you know, sober for 24 years? Well, let me answer that for you. A lot. I reluctantly went to my first planning meeting. Okay, this was just a planning meeting. This was not a CR meeting. It wasn't an open share. And this is what happened. It's kind of weird. I literally broke down crying. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but this is what was going through my head. Why would I ever have left a community that accepts me exactly the way that I am? I didn't even know 90% of the people in there, and yet I felt their love and compassion and mercy and grace for me. Well, today I keep coming back. I've completed and led many 12 steps since 2010, and God has revealed to me places in my heart and my mind that need to change, that need to be surrendered to him. So there's a couple things I want to say before I close. Because we always talk about, to the newcomer. Well, first thing I want to say is, to the person who maybe has been here for a really long time and is wondering, like, why do I still come? Why? So some people ask me, why after all these years in recovery do you still go to meetings, sponsor people, lead people through the steps? Isn't there an end to the program? Well, here's why. You know, before recovery, life was difficult. It was almost impossible. But can I tell you, even in recovery, sometimes life is difficult. I need you guys. I need people just like you, people that know who I am. I mean, I may not know all of you, but I feel like I'm in front of family right now. (laughs) 
So the difference is that when I follow Jesus on a path to recovery and redemption that he has laid out for me, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I get to struggle. I'm grateful that I can ask for help. I'm grateful I get to surrender. I'm grateful that I get to be a part of a community that accepts me exactly as I am, that I can listen for and actually hear God's word and his direction for me. I can hear him calling my name. And today in recovery, here's the big part, I can believe in the names that he calls me. So a lot of you have probably heard this part before because I stole it from Hosanna Wong. If you've ever been to the summit, you've heard this. In John 15, 15, he calls me his friend. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, he calls me chosen. In Ephesians 2, 10, he says, I'm his masterpiece, his workmanship. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, our body is his temple. Acts 1, 8, he says, we are his messenger. Galatians 3, 26, we are his children. Romans 5, 8, we are greatly loved. John 8, 36, we are free. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, we are brand new. Those are the names he calls us by. So let us hear him as he calls us and let us keep coming back. So if you're new here, and you know what? You don't know about this Jesus thing and you're not sure about it? Cool, keep coming back anyway because we're gonna love you just where you're at, okay? And I want you to know that Jesus loves you exactly where you are today. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to deserve that love. That's what his grace and mercy are all about. He's calling you to come home, to be at his table, because what I believe is that at his table, there's a chair for each and every one of us that has our name on it. And guess what? Nobody else gets to sit at that chair. He's saving it for us. So I'm a simple guy. I have to keep my recovery simple too. Surrender has to be my focus every day. And as you've just heard, my path to obedience has been a little bit slow. But God has been so, so faithful. With every yes that I say to Jesus, I can feel more of his blessings. Not that I get more of them, I can feel more of his blessings. And yes, I can become addicted to saying yes to everything people ask me. But saying yes to serving at church and at CR has been a blessing and many blessings. Because whether you realize it or not, even by saying yes to Scott when he said, would you come share your testimony? You all are blessing me tonight by doing this. <clears throat> but the, the biggest blessing that God continues to put on my heart is from the verse James 5.16. And this is the message or paraphrase version. It says, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. Taking this journey with brothers and sisters without the wedge of our secret sins in between us and without the wedge of those secret sins between us and God is incredibly powerful and healing. Now, I know I'm a long way from perfect and I have to surrender again and again, but I hold on to the same promise that the Apostle Paul lived by. First, uh, Philippians 1.6, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. Thanks for letting me share. I turned it off. I'm so sorry, but hey, let's hear it one more time for John. John, you did a phenomenal job. Well done. Thank you for sharing the truth with us. 
Uh, greatly appreciate it. Slay. Um, here's the focus question for tonight. How do you handle pain? So if you're online or you got a group, make sure you get together and ask that question, answer that question. How do you handle pain? And uh, let's stand, close with the serenity prayer, and then we'll head off to group. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever the next. Amen. Amen. First time guest right across the hallway. Second time guest right up front. I will be out at the table if you want to pick up an envelope. Slay. Children of God.